I want to invite you to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Join me there. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. This book is unsettling. It's awkward. It's, it's deep and it's, it's somber. And that's actually, we believe, wonderful for us. So, so are you feeling good? Feeling good? All right, let's fix that. Here we go. Verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things full of weariness a man cannot utter it the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun is there a thing of which it is said see this is new it has been already in the ages before us there is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increased, increases knowledge increases sorrow. May God in some powerful way use these dark words to grant us a deep and abiding hope in Him. This book goes right after what I would argue are some of the most important things that our culture holds dear. Not in order to destroy our hope, but to replace our superficial sense of happiness with a deeper and greater sense of things. I shared this with you. This is just a great summary of this word. We want to kind of dig into the way we understand that the word Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, the word preacher translated there, the word vanity even. And the word vanity that's, that's translated over and over and over again, it shows up 37 times 
is the word hevel. It's an onomatopoeia. It's meant to already give you an insight into its definition by the way that it's pronounced. It's like a, a breath. The rest of the wisdom literature speaks of this as like when you can see your breath, something that is fleeting. It doesn't last very long. This, this is the picture of life, right? It's, it's poof. And the, the last thing we'll see we try to define today is this phrase that happens almost 30 times is that phrase under the sun or under heaven. So life under the sun, life under heaven, apart from the, the, infinite, the infinitude of God and his goodness, down beneath it, in, in the brokenness and fallenness of a sinful world, things are fleeting. They are, in some sense, vanity, meaningless. They're poof. And I, I want to push into this today specifically so that you will consider the possibility that to despair of the meaninglessness of life under the sun is the beginning of finding hope beyond the sun. This invitation here that I extend to you is an invitation into despair. I don't want to soft sell this. In some sense, depending on what your day is built on, I want to ruin your day. I want to invite you into a sadness. And I want to invite you into that sadness for a purpose. That to begin to contemplate the meaninglessness of life apart from God is actually the beginnings of finding joy in God. To begin to contemplate the brokenness, the vanity, the, the wastefulness, the fleeting nature of our own lives apart from God is actually the beginning of faith in God. I'll say it this way. To despair of things that are not God is the beginning of joy in God. Last week we began to dig into 1 Kings chapter 3. You remember the, the first several chapters of 1 Kings, a more narrative language, tells us the story of the writer of this book, this, this man Solomon, this man who apparently denied himself no pleasure, and toward presumably the end of his life, he sits and he either dictates some of this to someone else to write it, or, or he writes it from his own perspective. And this is meant to be kind of this reflective summary of his life. He, he kind of stops and, and begins to reflect on an experiment that he jumps into in the course of his life. We'll, we'll dig more into this as he, as he systematically begins to deconstruct the things that we often put our hope in, the things we look for joy in. He, he will break them apart for the next 11 chapters and then kind of leave with this, this last little, this little preaching moment at the very end. And the first few chapters of 1 Kings tell us that he, that he enters into this, as we'll see for the next couple chapters, this, this kind of experiment. Did you, did you catch that? It says that I, I was a king over, over Israel in Jerusalem. And then in verse 13, you get the first window into this life experiment. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So he's going to find as best he can all the possible experiences under heaven, underneath God's created order, in this fallen, broken world, he's going to look for satisfaction, look for pleasure, look for comfort. He's going to look for all of these things. And then like any good communicator, he begins, like any good orator, he begins by grabbing your attention, doesn't he? The first verse being kind of a title, look, I'm, the words of the preacher, the son of David, and the second verse being kind of the the point of the entirety of the book. It just grabs your attention, right? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He'll spend the next 11 chapters unfolding that until finally he leaves us. And the same poem that begins right here, we see a, a recap, a different poem that wraps up 
the last little bit of admonition in chapter 12. Here's why I think this is going to be good for you and I to spend our time and to actually see that there might be a, a great thing in being invited into a, a kind of despair over our own lives. It's a few different things. First one, I think that this speaks a pretty powerful word to our own culture. Solomon is going to systematically deconstruct common monikers of today, kind of little euphemism, things that that we would probably stick on a bumper sticker and think are good to hear. Solomon, piece by piece, begins to deconstruct them to grant us something deeper. This is powerful. Many people have, even in the life of Christianity, people who would call themselves Christians, have actually taken kind of cultural, I would call it, let's, let's call it like a civil religion, like a, a broadly accepted set of held beliefs in our, in, that are customary in our culture and our society. Even people who would call themselves Christians have kind of taken those things, adopted them, and like kind of pseudo-baptized them, and then, and then pawned them off as Christian wisdom such that we've talked about this before. This will probably be a series for us again uh, in 2017 potentially, but one of the best things we can do is to like walk through our own culture and, and like point out the stuff that's not in the Bible, right? Like to just go, yeah, that's, act, that's act, no, right? Like the Lord helps those who help themselves. That's, act, that's actually the antithesis of the Bible. Like that is, that is the anti-gospel. Like the good news is not that you could fix your problems. If so, like Jesus didn't need to die. The good news is that you couldn't fix your problems. The Lord doesn't help those who could help themselves. There's nobody who could help themselves. The Lord helps us who have no ability to help ourselves. So piece by piece, Solomon starts to deconstruct the kinds of things that often get baptized out of society and like pawned off as cheap, superficial, I'll call it like bumper sticker theology fortune cookie Christianity. And Solomon rips them to shreds. So as we walk through this, there's going to be a powerful set of words here that even as we invite one another into kind of a sadness and despair, I hope that it's actually a healthy deconstruction of previously held beliefs that are holding you back from seeing the joy that we have in Christ. The second thing I think that's important for us is this gives us a, a sense, right, that this is the, the meaning of life being contemplated here. Uh, the Bible answers the question of origins, where did we come from, and, and endings, where do we go? We come from God and we go to God, and, and he begins to contemplate the meaning of life, and we would say that since we come from God and we go to God, then life only has meaning in God and with God. Now, First Kings tells us that Solomon was actually bad at this, Uh, Even though God granted him wisdom, he's one of the most ironic characters in the Bible. He's like history's wisest fool or most foolish wise guy. He's granted wisdom, but then he engages in this strange life experiment that ends up destroying and separating and dividing his kingdom, destroying his inheritance for his children, all because he wants to find this meaning apart from God. I think that might be helpful for us. As I look out, there's many of you I know who are, who are contemplating, like, why am I here? What am I doing? And I want to invite you into the despair that Solomon offers. Not so that you would live there, but so that it might be, let's call it a cultivating. Maybe a plowing up. Maybe we're ripping up weeds and digging down deep and, and turning the soil so that it's fertile for something that actually might give life. And then lastly, I think this might fit into our calendar, right? So um, March the 1st, I believe, is the first day of the season of Lent. 
one of probably the most misunderstood and misappropriated, let's call it, Christian seasons, right? And so as we begin to prepare, we, we take the, the biblical picture of Jesus embracing his own humanity and being driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and be tempted, to be tempted by human things. We're, we are called then as we prepare for the, the death and resurrection of Jesus at, as, we, as we celebrated at Easter, we're called in the season of Lent to begin to contemplate our own limitedness. And this picture of fasting that models Jesus' words or his own actions are, are meant to be a kind of a, a deep and, and reverent reflection on our own mortality. Really think about what it means to be human and to have a set number of days mapped out for us. I say misappropriated because this, I think, will probably set us on the right stage to begin to have hope in what God has done. I say misappropriated because Lent is typically where people missing the gospel just use it as an excuse to like uh, to do what they probably should have been doing the rest of the year. Have you seen these? We talk about this every time we celebrate something as a Christian, like in the Christian holiday or a Christian calendar, we have to be careful. Remember, like if you, if you only are, or if you, this is a hot tip for you, if you're only polite to like your significant other or your, uh, your spouse on, on Valentine's Day, well then you kind of betray who you really are the rest of the week, I'm mean, assuming in the rest of the year. Uh, so if like you only go out on a date on Valentine's Day, please stop. You're actually making your life more miserable than it should be. Um, but like, Valentine's Day should just be one more day that we love the people around us. And the same thing is true for the Christian calendar. Like, if we don't live in light of Christmas, the coming of God to be with us, we're missing out. If we don't live in light of Jesus' humanity and dying on the cross as a sacrifice for us, we're missing out on the experience of the Christian walk. And if we don't live in light every single day of an empty tomb that Jesus overcomes the grave, death, and hell on our behalf, you're missing out. This isn't just a once a year thing. This is every single moment that despair creeps in we look to his finished work same thing is true of lent so you hear people say things like well it's lent i'm gonna give up getting drunk for lent it's like i i think you you might have you might have missed that one right like you're supposed to give up sin uh things that are categorically sinful in the bible uh, all the time because Christ has given you a new heart, right? So it'll be like, well, I'm going to give up doing awful things for Lent. I'm like, you should actually lay that down anyway. And so like, it's a misappropriated holiday. Have you ever seen this? It's like a, it's an excuse. Sometimes we're like, I think Jesus wants me to lose weight. And so I'm going to like refrain from sweets or something. And then, and then rather than contemplating our own mortality by, by limiting ourselves intentionally, we, we actually just kind of misappropriate it and use like, Christian language to baptize things we already want to do, right? Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes rips those things right out of our hands. So begin the first word, it says the preacher. The Hebrew word is kohelet, and the Greek translation is the word ecclesiastes. Now that's a, a Greek kind of derivative of kohelet. Kohelet would simply mean to gather Literally, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's the gatherer of wisdom, the gatherer of sentences, and the gatherer of insight that, that we have here. But, but more, more specifically, it's kind of a callback to what we think Solomon probably did earlier in 1 Kings, that he gathered and, and spoke to these people. In 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 55, the Kohelet, the teacher, it says that speaking of Solomon, he stood in verse 55 and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, 
Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave or forsake us. Right? This is the word of the assembler. So presumably Solomon assembles a group of people. He gathers some people together and speaks as a preacher slash teacher to the assembly. Now, for those of you who've been a part of, of kind of sitting under the teaching in this church for the last year or two, that's a common word. Remember that word ecclesia? That's a big deal for us. That's the, the New Testament word, the Greek translation of, of what we see the word church now. Ecclesia, ek, out, klesos, called. The people of God, the church of God, are not a country club, but instead they are people called out of the world by God for his purposes, for his glory. So there's a sense in which, even this is an Old Testament text, it, it has a New Testament theme. And there's a sense in which, while this has personal and individual implications, it really speaks to, I don't know if you caught that, to the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. And the first thing that he wants to say is the word vanity. And we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, but it's a powerful word. The structure of Ecclesiastes is difficult to decipher. Most scholars say that he really was just rambling through his own frustrations. But there's a strange little theme going on here. You see, the word vanity is repeated 37 times. We'll see later that actually has a significance. He says it over and over and over and over again so that you and I will know if there's one point he's trying to make, it is that there is vanity. The last phrase that we have to kind of dig through is this phrase, under the sun. The Old Testament uses this phrase often. It says, what does man gain by the toil in verse 3 at which he toils under the sun? So he's saying something that's unique. There's a sense in which Ecclesiastes doesn't really fit into any other genre of wisdom literature or any other book of the Bible because it kind of stands out. Most, most of the time, the Bible is written from the perspective of God revealing himself to people. That is, there's a sense in which from beyond the sun, God speaks to those of us beneath the sun. Like God in the infinite and immortal and eternality of his presence that we call heaven speaks and reveals his character to us in the limited world in which we live. But this, this book isn't written from that perspective, is it? It's the opposite. It's it's so powerful to me because it's a reflection from beneath the sun, from beneath the eternal nature of God, this speaking, this reflection upon the meaning of life beneath the sun. We'll see that over and over and over again so that we'll see this is what this looks like. This is what living apart from God actually is. When we begin to despair of these things that are under the sun, we actually, I think, are beginning to plant the seeds of true and eternal hope. There's a joy that can be found in the excellence of God. It seems hopeless, but I would argue that this, is, this entire book is, in fact, especially the first chapter, it's like an apologetic for the life of faith. He is making an argument for the life of trust and faith in God by walking through the weariness and the meaninglessness of all of life apart from God. The way I would maybe summarize this for you, the way I would talk about this, is this is one of my favorite things on earth, man. Uh, 
Have you ever, have you ever seen these motivational posters? These motivational posters, it's like a motivational like, a picture of something, and then this little, you know, I don't know, let's, little bumper sticker words on the bottom, and you know, a little bitty, uh, little bitty fortune cookie saying across, like, you're, you can do better, or like, you're special, and you're, you're a snowflake, right? Have you heard these? They're awesome, okay? But you know what I like better than motivational posters? They're called anti-motivational posters. I, I don't really, I can't condone or endorse everything that you're going to find when you Google anti-motivation posters or anti-motivation, but I want to endorse a few of them. Because essentially, that is, a, that is a biblical picture. That is a biblical view. That is actually what Solomon is doing. One by one, he is deconstructing how we see this. So if you don't know this, I'm just going to walk you into this. My favorite place, despair.com, is the place where these are, these are found. Again, don't condone everything else. I love it. Ambition, the journey of a thousand miles, sometimes ends very, very badly. Hmm. Now, now before, before you just kind of like run away to think that might be too superficial. That's actually something that wisdom literature does. My favorite is Proverbs 6.6. 6. Remember this? Proverbs 6.6, 6, Solomon in his wisdom says, go and look at the ant, you sluggard. There's this picture in which like, even, you know, it's, it's God's revelation. Go to the ant, sluggard, consider his ways and be wise. There's a sense in which like, by God's grace, you, you can watch the ant and begin to understand the character of God. You can learn just by observing. The same thing I think is true here. There's a sense in which we watch, and we look at what fails, and learn, and find wisdom. Consistency. It's only a virtue if you're not such a screw-up. That's funny. I don't care who you are. You can not laugh. That's, that's fine. If you're not going to enjoy the dark kinda, these kind of dark things, you're going to hate the next few weeks in Ecclesiastes. Warning you now, okay? Just, you're going you're gonna to hate. If you, can't, if you can't laugh at the darkness... Fear, until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore, you will not know the terror of being forever lost at sea. I'm just, these are getting good, man. Just, just wait. Failure, when you're best, just isn't good enough. Personal favorite, agony. Not all pain is gain. Humiliation. The harder you try, the dumber you look. <laughs> I don't want to lose here. Lose my, my order. Limitations. I mean, how, this is great because it picks on like the most adorable. Limitations. Until you spread your wings, you'll have no idea how far you can walk. <laughs> what a... And they, wasn't that awful? They used a, 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 an adorable penguin. Like, ha, 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 you're a bird, but you're not, right? Personal favorite, persistence. It's over, man. Let her go. <laughs> I say this so that you will realize this is, this is kind of, this is a thing for us. Now, now for those of you who are more, more inclined to like be chipper and try to get over things quickly, Ecclesiastes will demand something difficult of you. Something we talked about last week that I believe that the Bible calls us to, that Christians ought to be the most serious kinds of people. Christians ought to be not afraid to think about their own failure. Like an anti-motivational poster doesn't scare a Christian because if we find our identity ultimately in God, then again, the despair of the things that are not God, we actually believe is the beginning of finding joy in God. And so this anti-motivational poster that 
he begins to walk through here is actually something that gives us life. In fact, to say that all is meaningless is to say something meaningful. To begin and grab your attention by saying that all things are vanity and meaningless, he is implying a sense of meaning. This is important for us because most people would argue, or certain scholars would argue, that Ecclesiastes is like an embrace of nihilism, a sense that, a sense that there is nothing lasting, nothing eternal. But, but what, what, what I would argue that the same thing we'll find for the latter chapters of Ecclesiastes, nihilism and postmodernism have, have a kind of uh, a problematic and hypocritical inconsistency. Because in fact, to say that if you're a nihilist, like that things don't matter is to imply that what you're saying matters. A nihilist who comes along and says, there is no point, well, now we kind of get the point. And to impose kind of a a sense of undermining reality often is a self-defeating practice. And so when we look at Ecclesiastes, he's not doing that because he doesn't just say, all is meaningless, and then he stops. Instead, he says, all is meaningless now. Contemplate, what does a person even gain from all their toil under the sun? So he's not just being pessimistic. He's not just being, he's not just being dire or somber without a purpose. He is proposing that to find a lack of meaning under the sun is to have a hunger for a deeper meaning beyond. In essence, he's offering an anti-motivational phrase for us to consider so that we would begin to contemplate the truth of reality. I mean, after all, as I kind of flip through some of those anti-motivational posters, like there's a sense in which, I could be wrong, but, and maybe I'm just the dark personality in the room, but there's a sense in which you see him and you're like, yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't know if you've ever dared greatly only to fail catastrophically, but there's something in you that goes like, I'm not going to do that again. I mean, I don't know if you've ever gambled on a relationship that destroyed you, broke your heart, and left you like bleeding on the side of the road. But there's a sense in which that, that's, that's real. And maybe you haven't bled, but I would argue you just, it's only because you haven't bled yet. One of the darkest authors of, of the last couple of centuries, Herman Melville, spoke of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says Ecclesiastes was the truest, most honest book ever written. And this is a man who was certainly, if you've ever read Moby Dick, accustomed to thinking about his own mortality, about his own limitedness, about his own striving after the wind. There's a sense which, as he says this, it, it ought to resonate with you, at least a little. Maybe you've succeeded at everything. Maybe you're right where you thought you would be. Uh, maybe the map of your life has brought you here and you, and you think this is exactly where you intended to be. But I, I don't know about you, I didn't see myself in an elementary school in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, like 10, 15 years ago. Maybe you did. Maybe you saw that coming. But I would argue that it's possible some of us have, been, have made our way in this room because of the truthfulness of this opening poem from verse 3 to verse 11. That sometimes the narrative of our own lives is moved forward by just a sequence of failure. I would argue even sometimes, like Ecclesiastes tells us, that some of the greatest wisdom you have, like mine, comes from the worst decisions. 
We talk about this often. There's a godly wisdom, but then there's sometimes there's an ignorant wisdom. There's a difference. So if all the setup and teardown crew, they know this. Whenever we walk through the setup and teardown of all the equipment here, we usually say, hey, we usually stop. And it sounds abrupt. We're like, stop, don't do that. Please don't do that. Um, and it's not, if we ever tell you that, it's not because we, like, we hate you or angry at you. It's usually because we've like, done it wrong so many times that we now figured out how to do it right. You ever had this kind of wisdom? There used to be on these uprights that hold some of these backdrops, there used to be, there's two of them that had like massive streaks of my own blood uh, that were running down them. And so when I always say, like when we're setting them up, I go like either wear gloves or watch your fingers. It's not because I hate you. It's because there's a sense in which like, don't be dumb like me. Don't, don't, don't needlessly use, like use up pieces of your own flesh. Don't do that. This is, this is the kind of wisdom that we have here. He's saying, look, look, if you've ever failed before, there's a sense in which you get what he's saying get it. But just let it weigh on you for a moment. Don't just let that hang there for a minute. Resist the temptation to just kind of run to the, okay, now Jonathan, tell us the happy stuff. Tell us the joyful part. Tell us the thing that makes me feel better. I love the personal language also that we see here. He says over and over and over again, did you catch those words? You've seen for the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book, I have said in my heart. It's like Ecclesiastes is more like a journal than anything else. In the book, Grief Observed, written by C.S. Lewis, there's a powerful thing. This is C.S. Lewis who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, right? The, the glory of Christ in a lion. I mean, this is the guy who wrote mere Christianity. These are great resources for the life of faith. But then he begins to reflect on watching his beloved wife, Helen, spend her last moments with breath. And he says this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting things. When you're happy, you're so happy that you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you are tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed by Him with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And that silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more empathetic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might just be an empty house. Was it ever even inhabited? It seemed like it used to be. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this possibly mean? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? I tried to put some of these thoughts into words this afternoon. He reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22, a lament from the Bible. Does that make it any easier to understand? It's not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion that I dread is not, so there's no God after all. The conclusion that I dread is, so this is what God is really like. Now be deceived no longer. 
Do you feel the weight of this? This is an author who is not unaccustomed to speaking words of hope and joy. But in this moment of his life, the words that came sound a lot more like Ecclesiastes, don't they? Like, What's the meaning? Where's the purpose? I can't see God. How can there be any meaning to this? Why am I in this? Have you ever cried those words? Because if you have, I want to encourage you, Solomon is setting the stage for us. He's giving us a script to begin to understand a deeper and lasting hope. Believing something about God that is lasting and true, even though it's offering maybe a a trek into a dark and uncharted waters, it is something that we find is beautiful. This teacher apparently wants to pass on to his assembly not just the ability to see God and trust in God when all things are good. Apparently, the most difficult thing, if C.S. Lewis is right and if Solomon is right, is to trust God when things are terrible. I don't think that I have to equip you as a church to celebrate God's goodness when everything is perfect. In fact, I come along and say God loves you, right? Jesus loves you. Right? God is good. His mercy endures forever. In a time of prosperity, you'll probably receive that with open ears and open arms. Yes, absolutely. You're right, Jonathan. But there's something disconcerting when after a great and massive loss, a great and massive failure. Have you ever had one of those phone calls? One of those phone calls that happens on an idle Tuesday that wrecks everything? All of a sudden, it seems disconcerting for someone to come and say, God is good. All the time. All the time, God is good. There's something that's disquieting when we contemplate the goodness of God in spite of the despair in the world. J.I. Packer, a phenomenal theologian of this century, speaks this way. He talks about his own experience of cynicism and how he relates to Ecclesiastes. And in fact, Ecclesiastes was the thing that drew him out of his own depression and sorrow. He says, feeling disillusioned and discouraged and hurt by his experience of life. Now remember, this is, this is powerful. J.I. Packer literally had a hole in his head from an accident that happened when he was a young man riding a bicycle. And because of this accident, it precluded the possibility of him being a part of any athletics or any sports or any games that other children were playing. And so he became a very disconnected, he became a very disillusioned, and he would argue even says a cynical person. And he says that, in fact, I began to dismiss such hollow claims of God's goodness. He says, cynics are the people who have grown skeptical about the goodness of life, the goodness of God, and they look down on claims to sincerity, morality, and value. They dismiss the claims as hollow, and they criticize programs for making improvements. Feeling disillusioned, discouraged, and hurt by their experience of life. Talking about cynical people. Their pained pride forbids them to think that others might be wiser and doing better than they themselves have done. Contemplate this as you listen to Ecclesiastes. Do you celebrate the victories of others? But here's a hard question for you. Are you annoyed by people who are joyful? Like, do you look at people with, a, with, a, with, a, with what seems to be a happy and joyful marriage and want to learn from them? Or do you, in your own heart, think like, nah, 
they're probably hiding something. When you look at people in their joy, do you celebrate with them or do you envy them? Do you want to learn from them, exalt them and honor them, or do you want to destroy them and bring them down? Because it seems that if you find your identity rather than in the secure and finished work that God has done for us, then what's left is a cynical and sarcastic, I would argue, reality. This is what Packer says. He said, as a result of being isolated, he says, I was an isolated oddity. Have you ever felt that way? This speaks to my, my own nature, right? As an isolated oddity in these ways, it was painful to me, as it would be to any teenager. So I developed a self-protective sarcasm. I settled for low expectations from life. And then I grew bitter. Pride led me to stand up for Christian truth in school debates, but with no interest in God or a willingness to submit to Him. Did you catch how this plays out? Did you catch the cynicism, how it how can rob us of joy? Well, let that just weigh on you for just a moment. Consider how this plays out. Is it possible that our sarcasm is actually just a veiled bitterness? Is it possible that our, our cynicism is actually just a veiled envy for people that we think are happier than us and we don't believe they deserve it? Is it possible that our own skeptical worldview is actually just built on the scars that are in your heart and mine? You know, all we're doing is expressing piece by piece the own, our own broken experiences. If so, then you are in just the right place for the book of Ecclesiastes to begin to grant something to you, a deeper and more abiding joy. All of earth, it seems, life under, on the earth, under the sun, under, or, uh, under heaven, we see here, it seems to be just like undermining the things that like, are anti-motivational posters. I don't, did you catch all the things that most, most people try to cheer you up? They try to cheer you up with stuff that I would argue is possibly even worse if you find to be you find yourself to be cheered up in something that's superficial it just hurts worse when it fails i don't know if you caught that but like the the poem that opens this like undermines every single one of these things every single verse beginning in verse three is like a picture of it's like an anti-motivational picture that undermines something that probably someone once tried to cheer you up with but might ultimately lead to despair did you catch that verse three does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Did you catch that? Picture, I don't know, picture a poster of your job, and at the bottom it says, you are wasting your time. Verse 4, generation comes, generation goes, the earth remains forever. You can't change the world. Verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises. Picture, the, picture like the on a poster, a sunset, and then in the caption it says, you are running out of time. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south, it goes to the north, it just keeps going, it's on a circuit, it never stops. Picture a tornado, and then the caption, like, you are not in control. 
Do you get this? We're not, we haven't run halfway there. Verse 7, all the streams run to the sea, but the sea never fills up. You can picture uh, the ocean or a stream and then the, kind of this phrase like, you're not a snowflake. You, in fact, you, you, if you are a snowflake, you are melted and you are flowing to a sea and you will one day evaporate. Did you, do you get this? this? This is undermining all of the things that we often fake happiness with. Verse 8, we're not even, and then we're not even at the end. All things are now full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye has not satisfied with seeing the ear not filled with hearing. Picture an eye and an ear in the phrase, you'll never be happy. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Do you hear what he's saying? You're not creative. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it's been already and the ages before us. Did you catch that? You're not unique. Verse 11, no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Did you catch that? It will all be forgotten. Would you do me a favor? Uh, If you know the names of your grandparents, would you raise your hand? Now keep them there, hold them up. If you know the names of your great-grandparents, keep holding your hand up. Here we go. If you know the names of your great-great-grandparents, keep holding your hands up. This is like a pitch for Ancestry.com, I think, right now. (laughs) If you know the names of your great-great-great-grandparents, hold them up. Off the top of your head, you know them. Got them? What about your great-great-great-great-grandparents? I know one of my great-great-great-great-grandparents, and that's only because I have selfish reasons. He was a church planter. He started a church, first Protestant church in the Republic of Texas. I get excited about it, right? <laughs> Don't know who he was married to. Don't know the names of his kids. So we made it to three greats, and there were two people. Two people! Did you catch that? That's not that long ago. That means that your beloved little grandkids will have grandkids that will not Know your name. So here's what this means. We can begin to dispense with the idea that we can be God in this earth. We can dispense with our need for comfort, right? Even as I say these words, your own sense of comfort is just being eroded away, isn't it? It's just like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like to think about this. One of my favorite, uh, one of my, my, my favorite British authors, I quote him often, all the time in, in, in his four quartets, T.S. Eliot, he says, human beings cannot handle much reality. Because when we really contemplate the limitedness of our own lives and influence, and we begin to think of the truth of this, it, it completely transforms our view of reality. Here's what I think this leads us to find. Here's what I think that Christians are begin, begin to contemplate. In Augustine, in St. Augustine, or if, if, you're, if you're a theologian, it's Augustine. If you're a grass grower, it's St. Augustine. So in his book, The Confessions, he says it this way, you have made for us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So here's what I think this means. If we begin to let this preacher-teacher shape our community, after all, ecclesia is is like the the formative word here. If we begin to let his words shape us, they're going to be personal and then corporate implications. Let us dispense with trite and shallow theology. That is, let us dispense with shallow views of God. 
Let us stop believing that we're the center of the earth. What do you pray for? If all the things you pray for are for your glory and your comfort, friend, you are not, you are not worshiping God. You think you are God, and you think that God serves you. And here's what I'll tell you. When he doesn't give you those things, and when life doesn't give you those things, you will find yourself at the end, like Solomon, going, I wasted all my time. I wasted my prayers and my efforts looking for something that could never satisfy me. Let us be the people that think substantively, deeply, even eternally about who God is and what he's done for us. And let us consider the possibility that if we have a short life and if our great, 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 great grandparents or great, excuse me, great, 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 great grandchildren aren't going to remember us, that's fine. Let, let, let them remember our God. Let them remember what God has done. Let them forget us, put the man in the ground, and let the message go on. Secondly, let us dispense with looking for joy apart from God. One of the greatest confessions I can lead you to, to begin to say with me is, I, I don't know if this applies, I regularly want significance and importance apart from God. I, reg- I, want, I want fame, I want significance, I want importance, and I want it apart from God. I want it just for me. I want people to like and worship me. And until you begin to confess that and admit that, a two-year-old and a three-year-old has no problem confessing this, right? They understand human depravity well. It's all about me. Give me what I want. If you don't, wah, right? And I'm going to make your life miserable, okay? Newsflash, most adults haven't grown out of that. They just learned how to use words and manipulate people. They don't cry as much but they abuse and bully just as much. Same thing. Let us dispense with this picture that life is for our glory and for our comfort. Do you know why life is miserable sometimes? Do you know why? Because you're not the center of it. Have you ever wondered why people don't like get out of the way when you jump into traffic? Because the road wasn't built for you. And the possibility, to open our eyes to this possibility that this is about God and His glory, actually is an opening of the door into real and lasting joy. Lastly, let us dispense with superficial understandings of life. Let's be the people who begin to think about a depth of life, a depth of faith, that will last through this kind of suffering. That when the meaningless of life begins to be apparent to us, we turn towards something more meaningful. So here we go. I think there are personal and corporate implications to these words in this chapter. When we begin to contemplate that a man who, who had all the wealth and all the resources and all the influence that the world has ever known, he, he, he had all of these things and he couldn't find satisfaction under the sun, then that probably means that you and I probably can't either, right? Unless, again, unless, unless you're the most, if, you, if you're like Solomon and like you're the most influential uh, most important, wisest person that you know. Okay, great. Keep, keep trying. You'll still fail. But I think what Solomon is saying that I'm the, I'm the most important, most wise, I'm the wisest, excuse me, most influential person that's ever lived. And, and, and it left me finding that all those things left me hungry for something great. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't change the world. I was, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a living anti-motivational poster. I think that when we begin to contemplate this meaning and look for hope beyond the sun, the personal implications are this. So I want to be intentional about this. I want to invite you to despair in the things that you are currently hoping in that are not Jesus. I know that sounds awful, right? That just sounds like that 
that runs against it. Like, I'm supposed, I'm, someone somewhere told you I'm supposed to just make you happy. Here's what I actually wish. I actually am praying that whatever that thing is that you're currently chasing, that you're currently putting your identity in, you know what I'm talking about, the thing that if someone criticizes that thing, you fly off the handle. If someone pokes at that little thing that you keep a secret, you go nuts. That thing. I am currently praying that whatever that thing is that you're putting your hope and trust in, you're finding your identity and worth in, I am praying that soon you will find despair in it. I'm praying, and this is awful it seems, but I'm praying that it fails. I'm praying that you are miserable in that thing. Because in fact, that might be God's mercy to rob you of that idol to grant you a greater joy. In fact, I want to invite you to consider the possibility that the reason that you have great despair is that you've actually hoped in the wrong things. And it's actually God's mercy not to let them succeed. I've illustrated this many different ways in this, kind of the same fashion before, but it's like this. Like, like I want my wife uh, to look at all the men in our church and despair that there are no good husbands. Like I want her to look at you men. I mean, I love you. I love you. I love you dearly. But I want my wife to look at all of you and be like, oh, there, is, there, is, there are no good men to marry in this church. Right? I want her to despair of, how, of what awful candidates for husbands you all are. Right? Why? Why would I want that? So that she would find great joy and great hope in the husband that has committed his life to her. Right? It, in fact, I would be the worst husband above all if, if I hoped that she would actually, man, I hope she finds a good husband amongst these guys. No! I hope she looks she's like, what a bunch of losers. Thank God I have this one. And I pray, I pray deep, deep despair. I pray that ever if her heart should wander from me and she looks to you for meaning, that she comes away broken and she goes, it's meaningless. Oh, but thank God for the husband that he's given me. Do you, do you get this? And why on earth would I wish that she would successfully find hope outside of me. Friend, God loves you enough. He loves you enough to deprive you of joy in other things so that you will have a lasting and eternal joy in Him alone. And it's going to hurt. You will, read, you, will, you will be an anti-motivational poster before you realize that your hope was never meant to be found in those things anyway. But here's the corporate implications. If this really is for an ecclesia, then here's what I think this looks like. I want to wrap up on this idea. I speak honestly, I love you all, but like I, I hate going to the dentist. I, I hate, and I hate, I hate being there. Like, I, I hate it. Like it's, it, it, it I, if you could, like their blood pressure, I mean, I'm, I am in, I'm in fairly good shape, but they check your vitals right before, blood pressure's through the roof. And they're like, they're, they think I'm like dying at that moment. And I'm like, no, like, well, it's, you're really, your pulse is high. And you're, it's because I don't want to be here, okay? Here's why. I think that, this is my own personal opinion, brushing your teeth feels meaningless, right? Brushing and flossing, just my own opinion. So there's some of you in this room that you love brushing. You love it, and you love going to the dentist. We'll get there. So, but there's, for the rest, it's, it's, like, it's like washing the car, mowing the lawn. You do it, but you're going to have to do it again, and what happens when I show up at the dentist, and it's really ironic, like I brush a whole lot and I floss a whole lot leading up to the cleaning, that doesn't make sense. Like I'm paying you to clean my teeth, why am I, well, I don't understand, right? So, and, and I show up and they're very, this is just, maybe you're not, maybe your dentist is not there, they're just really judgy. Have you ever noticed that? It's awful. 
And it's like they bully, they want you to lie to them. Like they know, right? They're like, you know, looking in your teeth and they're like, have you been flossing often? And I'm like, you do this all day. Why are you at, you want me to lie, don't you? And, and here's what, like, there's like this judgment and it's these people that like, I'm sure, I've never, here's what I've never had. I've never had a dentist go like, man, I really struggle to floss and brush my teeth. I've never had them empathize with me and like compel me into that. No, they just go, well, you better do it. My friend is a periodontist and he said this. He's like, you don't have to floss, only the teeth you want to keep, right? It was like, <laughs> all right, scare tactics. And, and it's really interesting, this, 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 this place I go and in fact, I, I started like flossing and, and brushing not because I want to, but because I just don't want to be judged the next time I see the dentist and the hygienist. I'm I, like, even this morning, five o'clock, I'm brushing and I'm going like, I don't really want to do this, but I don't want to face the judgment. And I don't want them to just like look down on me. And it kind of puts me in a situation where I have to lie and hide. Did you know that sometimes that's what the church looks like? Did you know that that's sometimes what the church starts to look like? A church that isn't honest about misery and failure and disappointment. A church that isn't honest about ways that they have failed and rebelled against God starts to feel that way. And it's a turnoff. Here's what I think. What would it look like if we began to realize that instead of having to hide the brokenness and the disappointment, if we, instead of trying to hide the sense of failure, the sense of resentment that we carry with us, what if we actually believe that Jesus was speaking the truth, that he's not like a dentist, but instead he says, come. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you're depressed, if your life is an anti-motivational poster, come, I'll carry it. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to lie about it. You don't have to pretend. I know you've failed. I know you've looked for meaning in these things and, he's, and you've failed. I know that because I've designed you to only find hope in me. Can you begin to imagine what a church compelled by this radical sense of honesty about our own humanity would start to look like? Would you consider looking beyond the sun would you cry out to God? Admit that you cannot make this work and that you desperately need help. Would you cry out to Jesus that he would be your satisfaction? Because the first step might be relinquishing any desire to find satisfaction everywhere else. And if this is Ecclesiastes, a book to an ecclesia, well then here's what I have to say. What would it look like if that started to transform us? What kind of conversation would you have over lunch after this? If instead of trying to hide your brokenness, it was the first thing you led with? What kind of relationships would you begin to have with the people in this room? If instead of trying to clean up to impress them once a Sunday, you actually began to let your life be seen for all its feelings of meaninglessness and vanity? You might lose hope under the sun. But I would argue that you would begin to find it beyond the sun 
and what God has done for you completely and sufficiently in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are grateful to you for your goodness. Uh, we are humbled to confess. God, I, I, lead, I lead with this. I, 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 above all the people in this room, desire to find significance, to find comfort, to find meaning apart from you. I regularly would, would like to find purpose apart from you. Either it's because I'm afraid that, that, to admit that I need help, or God, maybe it's just because I, I worship my own comfort and approval so much that I, I, I look for it anywhere I can find it. Would you begin to allow us in this room to one by one confess that failed loyalty? We begin to consider the possibilities that as, as we open our hearts up to the despair that we genuinely feel, would you begin to allow us to confess that? and let you have access to that so that you can replace that despair with a lasting and eternal joy. If there's some in this room and the, the thought of being a Christian has seemed superficial and, and silly, God, God, forgive us for the ways that we've appeared that way. Um, forgive us for the ways that we've just made following Jesus look like superficially happy. Uh, may we be the people that that begin to demonstrate real and true joy. But if there's some in this room that have thought that, would, would they begin to resonate with Solomon? Would they begin to relinquish their own loyalty to the things under the sun, the things that they are currently seeking after, such that they would be ready and able to experience joy that comes from you? We love you for this gift of Jesus Christ that has transcended the boundaries of heaven and earth so that now we look beyond the sun to your perfect and spotless sacrifice, Jesus Christ, that we find identity in it. And we are given joy in our right standing with you. We love you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.